When you hear the word data, your mind probably doesn't go straight to the field of interior design or architecture, but that's exactly what we're gonna dive into today. And bear with me because there is good reason for it. Data is quite simply pieces of information and in its raw form, it doesn't do much for us. It's just tiny pieces of a much larger puzzle. A quote that we love, you can be drowning in information, but starved for insights. The amount of data being collected in the world around us is staggering. According to the executive chairman at Google, there were five exabytes of information created between the dawn of civilization through 2003. But that much information is now created every two days. Okay, so what does this have to do with design? One of the roles that our team at ThinkLab has is collecting the data for our sister company, Interior Design Magazine, for what's like the Fortune 500 of the design industry, the annual interior design giants of design. As we examine this data, we get a glimpse into what's top of mind for the top firms in our industry. And one of the undeniable questions on the minds of many giants across market sectors is, how can we best collect and use data to leverage decision-making in design? I'm your host, Meredith Campbell. And I'm Jessica Jenkins, Meredith's co-host for this episode. And we are part of the research and content team at ThinkLab. In today's episode, we sit down with Dr. Mike O'Neill, leader of data science research for the Ginsler Research Institute, to understand where the role of designer and researcher differ and where they can meet in the middle. He'll also share shifts in how we currently use data and how that will change in the future. And finally, he'll clarify which technologies have the largest implications for our industry. And in the second portion of this episode, we will look at a different perspective as we sit down with Mitch Dalton, Chief Innovation Officer at Core Spaces, a national student housing developer, owner, and operator. He'll illustrate tactile ways to utilize data throughout the design and development process and evaluate key components to make data most effective. And don't worry, even if you don't geek out over research like we do, we think you'll find this topic worthwhile. The power of data and the technologies that translate it have major implications for design. But first, before we dive in, I'm pleased to introduce Faye Adams of Delta Fawcett Company, today's episode sponsor, to walk you through the learning objectives. After listening to today's episode, you'll be able to, first, contrast how we currently use data with how that will change in the future. Second, analyze the role of the designer and the researcher. Third, evaluate the two main types of data. And lastly, examine which technologies have the largest implications for our industry. You'll hear from Faye again later in the episode with instructions on how you can obtain continuing education credit through IDCEC or AIA for listening. First, let's hear from Mike on how he got into his role as leader of data science research at the world's largest design firm. What kind of background leads someone to this intersection of research and design? My educational background is interdisciplinary, psychology and in architecture. And that has allowed me to explore the intersection between people and space, which has been my passion. I actually helped to build and fine tune and train a neural network application. And it was based on the biology of the brain. 
And we use that to predict human decision-making in buildings, in particular wayfinding tasks. And it was truly a cross-blending of computer science, cognitive psychology, and architectural design. So that's really what kindled my passion in these kinds of analytic tools that I've sort of carried with me long-term. And from there, I was a professor at the University of Wisconsin, and I taught in interior design and industrial engineering. But I spent most of my career in the commercial office furniture industry. I've led research efforts for a number of manufacturers. My central focus has been on human stress, well-being, organizational performance, and importantly, how do we measure that? because it's always been a challenge and you have to do it right. Kind of during that time, I've written two books on workplace research and metrics. And more recently, I was a co-author on a 2018 book called The Healthy Workplace Nudge, which was a finalist for the 2020 Cornet Global Innovation Award. I've had the pleasure of joining Gensler earlier this year, and I work in the Gensler Research Institute and I lead data science initiatives for them. And it's super exciting because these are powerful new tools that open up really huge opportunities to do groundbreaking research to get at that complex interplay between people and their spaces. Now, if you are a designer, why should you care? And what's most important to know when it comes to using data in design? I think for the first time, we have the potential to truly understand the impact of workplaces, higher education, healthcare spaces, on things that we care about, on human performance being how to improve people's lives or protect their health in ways that we've never had before. It's just such an exciting time. And I think that it's incumbent upon all of us, whether you're a research person working at a design firm, whether you're a designer or architect, to understand some of these technologies better so that you can take advantage of any resources that may emerge Mike wrote an article titled A Future Vision of Workplace Metrics, and in it, he describes key shifts in the way that we use data in the past compared with how he sees we can leverage it in the future. Now, whether you're creating spaces for people to live, work, or play, the shifts that Mike is describing have implications for measuring all types of space usage. One of the most fundamental shifts that you'll hear Mike talk about is people-centric metrics or focusing on people outcomes rather than just facility performance. If we go back 45 years to the 1970s, 90% of the value of the S&P 500 was in tangible assets. So those were the machines, the factories, the natural resources, et cetera, physical things that companies owned, okay? 90% of the value. Fast forward to 2021, 90% of the value is in intangible assets. These are patents, processes, IP. All of these things are created by people and their brains. If people are so important to today's economic value, shouldn't we have a people-centric approach to design, you'd think? And so one of the big drivers of these changes and what we're measuring and the things I'll talk about is that People-centric workplace design is fundamentally changing the definition of how we measure workplace performance. So I think we need workforce outcome metrics. Traditionally, metrics have been space-focused. What's the cost per square foot? What's the space density, space utilization? And these are gonna remain important, but we need to add that human dimension. 
How does space affect retention? How does it affect stress? How does it affect innovation? And, and these are very challenging things to try to measure, but it's a good thing because we're starting to really directly be able to make that connection between workplace and these kinds of outcomes. That's one big change that I don't think is gonna go back to the way things were. The next big change is that we're moving from being able to measure very few things because of our very limited sources of data to being able to measure based on large amounts of data. So at the same time, we're moving from a very limited array of data sources to a wide range of data sources. In workplace evaluation forever, and even today, most data comes from surveys or observing people use the space. But now there's a much broader range of features that we are beginning to understand impact occupants, you know, like their well-being and their satisfaction and performance. That could be things like indoor air quality, air pollution, lighting levels, aspects of a planning model that could be how many individual work points are there to meeting seats, sustainability metrics like building energy use, greenhouse gases, carbon footprint, a lot of data. And in the past, people like myself who are trained in essentially social science research, you can't do anything with that data. Uh, if you could even get it, it would be such a massive volume. You can't, using traditional statistical tools, really do anything. But now things have changed in the world and those sources are potentially available. Another introduction that Mike has observed is that we're looking at the purpose of data. Is it for data science or social science? Because the way that data is used will vary depending on the way it is being evaluated. Here's Mike with the two main differences between the two approaches. Social scientist uses a what's called a deductive approach. And this means I have a theory about the world, the big world out there. And I'm going to gather a little bit of data and I'm going to do some analysis of it. And I'm going to try to prove out there in the real world that the big theory is true. So you're deducing something from a small sample to, to say that a larger truth is true or not true. Data science projects often use what's called an inductive approach. They love huge amounts of data and they say, let's just grab all this data. We don't have a theory. We're just going to look at the data and see if we can make an observation that emerges from that data. And so those two paths of social science people and data science people have never crossed because they're fundamentally have such a different approach. A social scientist would never do that. You have to have a hypothesis. You have to have a structured approach. Another is, I would call it a static versus an adaptable model. In my social science role, I would gather data and I would build a carefully handcrafted statistical model to prove this larger truth out there. And it's bespoke. I use every bit of data I can get my hands on to build that model. I can't change the model once I built it. And I never revalidate with additional data. I just do the model and I write it up and I publish it and that's it. And in data science, it's about the opposite. You never use all your data to build a model. You use a little tiny portion of it to train the model and then another little tiny portion to test it. And then you might gather more data and you do another training and another, and another test. And then you finally build the model. And once the model is built, you go back and you revisit it and you update it with new data. So again, it's just a very, very different approach. 
But you can see that there's a lot of potential in a model that grows and adapts and changes and learns over time, as opposed to your carefully crafted model that you build once and you never touch it again. So if you are wondering if this new approach to data is something that you as a designer will need to know, don't worry, Mike isn't suggesting that you need to add social scientists to your title. But we can bridge the gap between the role of the designer and the power that social science brings to the equation. And perhaps that's through a new role altogether. There are people graduating from college now that have analytic background and graphic design background, and they're very savvy with some data science tools, and they're doing things like they're going out and they're scraping websites, and they have a hypothesis, and they're building not a static graphic representation, but a live website that has graphics that you can manipulate that are representing data objects, and they're doing storytelling with them. And that's not necessarily, obviously, a designer's role, but what I think is happening is that there's been a big chasm between social science researchers and designers. And there's conferences that people go to with a theme of bridging the gap, and it's been really hard because Designers are more synthetic. They're trying to pull things together for a holistic solution and researchers kind of are people who try to break things up into pieces and then present things. Some of these newer people who can gather different types of data, but present it in a way that's intended from the beginning to engage and tell an engaging story that is more amenable to, to communication with a designer because it's a more qualitative experience than reading a column of data, tabular data, or something like that. Mike mentioned a term that you've probably heard before, machine learning. So we asked him to help define these technologies for us because they are already impacting design in the way we use technology in our everyday life, whether we're aware of it or not. I will preface this by saying that there is not 100% agreement on every one of these definitions, but I think mine are reasonable. AI or artificial intelligence, it's sort of a general umbrella term for all of these tools. When people say AI, it refers to machine learning. It refers to neural networks or deep learning. I define machine learning then, which is probably the broadest array of technology. They are technologies that collect, process data, find patterns, or interpret the data, and they use algorithms and various types of statistics to do that. Another thing that is a truth within all these tools is that these tools, whatever they are, either predict things or they classify things. And as human beings, those are very human-like characteristics. We spend every day of our lives either trying to predict things, like what's gonna happen next in this conversation because you're thinking ahead or what's the weather gonna be like in an hour, or we classify things. A machine learning example would be your spam filter on your email. Your spam filter works tirelessly behind the scenes, blocking emails by classifying them as either spam or not spam, or cat, looks, it could look at a photo, cat, not cat. That's your typical machine learning example. Another technology you've probably heard of and definitely encountered in your day-to-day -day life is called deep learning. Then the term deep learning is typically used to describe artificial neural network models. And if you say doing deep learning, 
that's generally thought of as this is the way human beings think, or this is the way the human brain works. For instance, Netflix has a recommender tool and it looks at your viewing history and it will suggest movies that you might enjoy watching. That's a prediction model. And that uses a deep learning model to predict your choices. The interesting thing about these, both of these models is that they can learn and they can get better over time. So the more Netflix watches what you are watching, the better it gets at predicting. The more spam email you get, the better your spam filter gets at classifying which of your emails are spam or not. You've probably noticed that you can even go in and it'll say, is this really spam or not? You're teaching it, it's learning from you. Same thing about these models is that despite all the good things that they do, the problem is that these models are a black box. They accurately predict an outcome or classify something, but they don't explain how they did it. They don't explain the underlying reasons for why. And that would make a social scientist crazy because social scientists are all about explaining the reasons for an underlying phenomena, which is another reason why these tools haven't been you know, widely embraced at this point. And outside of machine learning and deep learning, Mike is observing a few additional tools that could have an impact on design in the future. There's one newer one that we're looking at. It's called UMAP. It does dimension reduction. And it is a machine learning algorithm. And UMAP stands for Uniform Manifold Approximation and Projection. Machine learning is all about dimension reduction, which is a fancy way of saying, I'm going to take a whole lot of data and a whole lot of complexity, and I'm going to try to simplify it. That's what dimension reduction is. You can take 100 data inputs and make them into three that you can understand, and it identifies the things that are important. So what UMAP does is you can throw thousands, tens of thousands, millions of data points into it, and it will look for relationships and cluster them in a three-dimensional space that you can manipulate. And then you can look at these clusters, crack them open, and again, look in there and say, I'm seeing some patterns that I think are an interesting story. I see some associations here. And it's doing it in a very novel way that is different from earlier types of classification tools. And lastly, we wanted to know what is Mike and his team working on that they're most excited about, given all of the amazing advancements in how we use available data? At a high level, we're investigating this idea of the ecosystem of work and how people and the buildings they work in are embedded in a neighborhood, in a community, in a city. What does that mean? And taking that systems approach to understanding well-being, work performance, organizational effectiveness, and then being able to apply tools to gain some legitimate understandings and insights from that. And that really is only something you can do with machine learning, machine language. The other kind of a more specific project is we do have a sentiment analysis going on that are looking at written comments about how people feel about their work experience and space. Natural NLP, it's natural language processing is a very powerful tool where typically when people do surveys, you don't want to collect open-ended comments. There's just no way to rationally do that. You don't want to sit through thousands of comments. Machine learning lends itself well to looking at written comments and helping you understand what the key themes are. So that would be another we're interested in. 
Now you've heard from Mike about how Gensler Research Institute is leveraging data to make broad design decisions around corporate spaces. But now we want to look at the same topic, data and design, from a different perspective, how developers are utilizing data to design and inspire the spaces we live in. Meet Mitch. My name is Mitch Dalton. I am the Chief Innovation Officer for Core Spaces based in Chicago. We are a national real estate development company predominantly focused in educational markets, providing off-campus private housing. I primarily work in the upfront strategy and programming of our projects. That's the physical space, adjacencies, overall strategy with the built environment. I've got my master's in real estate finance and economics at DePaul University and have been working with A&D clients pretty much my entire career. As we look at data through the lens of a student housing developer, it's helpful to first understand what is being collected, and when in the development process is data utilized. So from the very beginning of a project, we're diving into localized data. So that's topography, zoning, massing, traffic studies, master planning, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes that's hard binary data, ones and zeros, things that you can put in an Excel spreadsheet. Other times it's conversations and just research. Then we look at demographic data. What are potential tenants? Where are they coming from? What are their purchasing behaviors and preferences? What's their demographic cohort? What are the unit types that are offered? The absorption rate of those unit types. As you start to collect these things, it starts to inform your strategy, which in turn informs how you're gonna design them. Mitch shared how they use data to drive their design strategy, but he also mentioned one key area they focus in on, their potential tenants. But why is that data so important? Mitch will explain their why, and he'll point to another space that effectively uses the same data focus in the interior design experience. And that space may surprise you. We use data to define what we are going to build, but the most important aspect is who we are building it for. And that's a much more loaded question than just simple supply and demand economics. You really have to be empathetic and really dive into those details and understanding who it is that you're actually designing for. We use it because we are not the end user. We we are not in college. We are not looking for a rental home. So for us to make these decisions without having any of that information, we could be completely off base and it's gonna to lead to an unsuccessful project. So when I think about the most effective or efficient use of data influencing design, I always think about grocery stores. Everything is data-driven in terms of building that brand hierarchy, not just on the shelving itself, but also how you move through the space and you're creating opportunities and touch points through data and executing it through design to make it the most effective sales experience that you possibly can. How many times do you buy something after you've already gotten your list done? Well, it's because they've positioned those things strategically. Grocery stores are designed incredibly efficiently, but they're also thinking about the flow of traffic through the grocery store and how people actually shop, which places they're going to first. And they strategically position new brands and new companies to optimize the number of eyes on each of those products. So not only are they using data to design things very, very efficiently, but they're also using it to position things very effectively to maximize the time spent in the grocery store. So why can't we utilize data to build better places for people to actually live? How can we gather those insights and use that in our design processes so how do we utilize data to design better places? 
While you previously heard from Mike around leveraging people-centric data for the workplace, you'll hear a similar perspective, but with a different focus on designing for the places people live. And as Mitch mentions, this may require using data to create end user specific personas. In student housing, people think that all college students are pretty much the same, right? You have freshmen to seniors, and that's the big differentiator, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. You have students from all over the country, all over the world, congregating in a very, very small place in a very finite time in their life where their preferences are changing, sometimes on a day-to-day -day basis. They might work, they might study, they might live completely different than someone else. So it's not about the individual, it's about getting enough information on each of those individuals to kind of triangulate the best space that will fit the most people's needs. And we obviously can't get a cross-section of every single student that may potentially not just live in this building in the year one lease, but in perpetuity. So we do end up building personas and we use all sorts of insight from that, from focus groups to asking questions to raw data in terms of where they come from, what they study, what did their coursework look like, how far are they walking? But then once we define what those personas are, that's kind of our, our hypothesis, then we go out to prove those hypotheses by asking people who we think fit into these persona categories, if we're right or if we're completely off base, and then looking at what those personas do over time. The more and more information, the more and more persona building that you can do during your design development process, better your programming design is going to be at meeting those demands before they even know that they're going to need it. Now, you may have heard of personas before. They are quite commonplace in consumer marketing, but not always in the design industry. So how do you understand the impact a persona's day-to-day -day has on design? Mitch will explain how they use customer journey mapping to gain deeper insight on the tenant experience. Once we start to understand what these personas might look like, we will go through a customer journey mapping of what their day-to-day -day looks like. Customer journey mapping is a pretty arduous task, but it doesn't have to, to even glean a little bit of insight. It can be as simple as just asking, what do they do as soon as they get up, as soon as they leave the building, when they come back, when they go to bed, what does that look like? What are those touch points? How do you interact with the amenities? How do you interact with the staff and the site teams? Trying to pull out all of these different touch points, not just in the physical world, but also the digital and how those two things interact with each other. It's not just in, inside the space, but it, you know, the second that they leave the doors, what are they doing? And what are they doing in between the time that they leave and they come back? And are there certain things that we can do to make that just a little bit easier, a little bit more convenient? And that all just helps us be better developers, better designers, better architects. And as we look at leveraging data to be better at design, Mitch explains their approach to leveraging both quantitative, the hard numbers, and qualitative, the soft personal stories, in an iterative way. Like design or a painting, it's never really complete. It's an art to know when to keep digging and when to stop. The relationship between quantitative and, and qualitative, it's not sequential. It's a balance and working back and forth between that quantitative and qualitative data. Neither are valuable without the other. So as an example, parking. We hate parking because it's terrible for the environment. It's incredibly expensive to build and you can't generate a ton of income off of it. And it just makes your buildings kind of gross. So when we go out and we say, how many drivers are there? How many people own cars? How many people rent cars? And then we go and ask, how do you use your car? What do you use your car for? And then go back and balance those two things. A lot of times they're going to be complete opposites. Yeah, I have a car at school, but I only take it 
twice a month to go grocery shopping or to go home. Okay, well, that probably means that we don't need to have one-to-one -one parking in every single one of our buildings. Data would tell us that we needed this much parking to be competitive in that market. Then when we actually went out and asked, we realized that, yeah, people do have that many cars. Do they need it on a day-to-day -day basis? Do they need it in the bottom of their building? No. And actually, they probably don't want to pay for it either. It alleviated the required parking inside of our building to remain competitive in the marketplace. And that just came from understanding our customers just a little bit deeper just by asking. As Mitch pointed out, you need both qualitative and quantitative data in order to gain real insight on your client's needs. Without one, you may be missing key elements that impact your design decisions. And good news, designers have an inherent quality to unlock quantitative data's insight. The design industry already possesses the skills necessary to deal with qualitative data. I think it's a quantitative part that gets a little bit more tricky. Where in quantitative data do you go to look to find these stories? And it honestly just takes practice and it takes curiosity. So I think utilizing your already empathetic mindset, you're already thinking about how do people move throughout the space? How do they use the space? How do they use specific programming elements? When you think about a design brief, for instance, and you have some programming elements that are dictated by the client. Well, the client may or may not be analyzing those themselves. They might be getting a report back from a market saying, oh, well, the single most important amenity is the rooftop pool or a co-working space or, you know, an outdoor patio, et cetera, et cetera. But they might not be asking why or what needs to be included and taking that little extra step farther, I would say asking for that raw data, right? Someone had to analyze it. Someone had to take these results, these quant results and come up with insight. But that doesn't mean that you can't challenge that insight or ask a couple more questions. So if you're able to get a hold of that raw data and you have the patience to kind of go through it and start picking out some of those storytelling elements and then digging just a little bit deeper as to the why behind some of these things, I think from my experience, you can become a lot more empathetic in the decisions that you make and a lot more intentional. And the design industry inherently is more empathetic than other industries, right? So you're already used to working with this qualitative inputs and creating design practices around those. And lastly, we'll hear from Mitch one tip he would share when it comes to collecting and using data in design. Collect it literally everywhere. Collect it yourself. Don't wait for someone to hand it to you. And be skeptical and curious, but above all, empathetic. If you can use data in a small way to make something a little bit better, a little bit more insightful, a little bit more empathetic to your user, it's just going to end up making your project and really the world a whole lot better. Here's Faye Adams from Delta Fawcett Company to close out the episode and share instructions on how to obtain credit for listening to today's episode. Three things from the episode that stood out to me. First, data informs not only what we build, but for whom we build it. Now more than ever, designers have the ability to focus on people outcomes versus space performance alone. For example, stress reduction and overall well-being, or time savings and convenience. This people data lends tremendous insight into the total impact of a design. Second, data provides storytelling elements that not only lead to more intentional recommendations and decisions, but help explain the why behind them. And finally, data is everywhere, anywhere and everywhere. Be curious, 
Look around for it and use it in small ways to build upon the inherent empathetic qualities you likely already have as a divine professional. Throughout this episode, I was reminded of the well-rounded approach we take at Delta Fawcett Company to study various end users when designing a new product or honing a service model. Our entire organization routinely innovates based on a solid mix of quantitative and qualitative data, the most interesting of which might be our ethnographic methodology. It's best described as studying the behaviors, actions, and preferences of real people in authentic situations. Not asking them what they think they want or need, but watching them in their element and uncovering wants and needs they don't know they have. We're really proud of the way our teams go above and beyond to truly understand and attentively execute positive effects on real life experiences. Rest assured, you have an empathetic partner in Delta Fawcett Company and our portfolio of brands, Brizo, Delta, and Peerless. To obtain credit for listening today, simply visit the show notes of this episode and click the link to take a short quiz. That's it. Thanks for listening and learning with us today. The Learning Objective is a Surround Podcast Network original production. Check out more shows from Surround at surroundpodcasts.com. This episode of The Learning Objective was produced and edited by Sandow Design Group. Special thanks to the podcast production team, Hannah Vitti, Wise Grisette, and Samantha Sager.